0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tremendous Trifles by G. K. Chesterton Chapter 36 A Somewhat Improbable Story I cannot remember whether this tale is true or not. If I read it through very carefully, I have a suspicion that I should come to the conclusion that it is not. But unfortunately, I cannot read it through very carefully because, you see, it is not written yet. The image and the idea of it clung to me through a great part of my boyhood. I may have dreamt it before I could talk, or told it to myself before I could read, or read it before I could remember. On the whole, however, I am certain that I did not read it, for children have very clear memories about things like that, and of the books which I was really fond, I can still remember, not only the shape and bulk and binding, but even the position of the printed words on many of the pages. On the whole, I incline to the opinion that it happened to me before I was born. At any rate, let us tell the story now with all the advantages of the atmosphere that has clung to it. You may suppose me, for the sake of argument, sitting at lunch in one of those quick lunch restaurants in the city where men take their food so fast that it has none of the quality of food, and take their half-hour's vacation so fast that it has none of the qualities of leisure. To hurry through one's leisure is the most unbusinesslike of actions. They all wore tall, shiny hats as if they could not lose an instant even to hang them on a peg, and they all had one eye a little off, hypnotized by the huge eye of the clock. In short, they were the slaves of the modern bondage. You could hear their fetters clanking. Each was in fact bound by a chain, the heaviest chain ever tied to a man. It is called a watch chain now among these there entered and sat down opposite to me a man who almost immediately opened an uninterrupted monologue he was like all other men in dress yet he was startlingly opposite to them in all manner he wore a high shiny hat and a long frock coat but he wore them as such solemn things as they were meant to be worn he wore the silk hat as if it were a mitre and the frock coat as if it were the ephod of a high priest he not only hung his hat up on the peg but he seemed such was his stateliness almost to ask permission of the hat for doing so and to apologize to the peg for making use of it when he had sat down on a wooden chair with the air of one considering its feelings and given a sort of slight stoop or bow to the wooden table itself as if it were an altar i could not help some comments springing to my lips for the man was a big sanguine-faced, prosperous-looking man, and yet he treated everything with a care that almost amounted to nervousness. For the sake of saying something to express my interest, I said, this furniture is fairly solid, but of course people do treat it much too carelessly. As I looked up doubtfully, my eye caught his, and was fixed as his was fixed, in an apocalyptic stare. I thought ordinary as he entered save for his strange cautious manner but if the other people had seen him then they would have screamed and emptied the room they did not see him and they went on making a clatter with their forks and a murmur with their conversation but the man's face was the face of a maniac did you mean anything particular by that remark he asked at last and the blood crawled back slowly into his face nothing whatever i answered one does not mean anything here it spoils people's digestions he limped back and wiped his broad forehead with a big handkerchief and yet there seemed to be a sort of regret in his relief i thought perhaps he said in a low voice that another of them had gone wrong if you mean another digestion going wrong i said i never heard of one here that went right This is the heart of the Empire, and the other organs are in an equally bad way. No, I mean another streak gone wrong. And he said heavily and quietly, But as I suppose that doesn't explain much to you, I think I shall have to tell you the story. I do so with all the less responsibility, because I know you won't believe it. For forty years of my life I invariably left my office, which is in Leadenhall Street, at half-past five in the afternoon, taking with me an umbrella in the right hand and a bag in the left hand. For forty years, two months, and four days I passed out of the side office door, walked down the street on the left-hand side, took the first turning to the left and the third to the right, from where I bought an evening paper, followed the road on the right-hand side round two obtuse angles and came out, just outside a metropolitan station where I took a train home. For forty years, two months, and four days I fulfilled this course by accumulated habit. It was not a long street that I traversed and it took me about four and a half minutes to do it. After forty years, two months, and four days, on the fifth day I went out in, in the same manner with my umbrella in the right hand and my bag in the left, and I began to notice that walking along the familiar street tired me somewhat more than usual, and when I turned it I was convinced that I had turned down the wrong one. For now the street shot up quite a steep slant, such as one only sees in the hilly parts of London, and in this part there were no hills at all, yet it was not the wrong street. The name written on it was the same, the shuttered shops were the same, the lamp-posts and the whole look of the perspective was the same, only it was tilted upwards like a lid. Forgetting any trouble about breathlessness or fatigue, I ran furiously forward and reached the second of my accustomed turnings, which ought to bring me almost within sight of the station. And as I turned that corner, I nearly fell on the pavement, for now the street went up straight in front of my face like a steep staircase or the side of a pyramid. There was not four miles round that place so much as a slope like that of Ludgate Hill, and this was a slope like that of the Matterhorn. The whole street had lifted itself like a single wave, and yet every speck and detail of it was the same, and I saw in the high distance as at the top of an alpine pass, picked out in pink letters, the name over my paper shop i ran on and blindly now passing all the shops and coming to a part of the road where there was a long gray row of private houses i had i know not why an irrational feeling that i was a long iron bridge in an empty space an impulse seized me and i pulled up the iron trap of a coal hole looking down through it i saw empty space and the stairs when i looked up again a man was standing in his front garden having apparently come out of his house he was leaning over the railing and gazing at me we were all alone on that nightmare road his face was in shadow his dress was dark and ordinary but when i saw him standing so perfectly still i knew somehow that he was not of this world and the stars behind his head were larger and fiercer than ought to be endured by the eyes of men ''If you are a kind angel,'' I said, ''or a wise devil, or have anything in common with mankind, tell me what is this street possessed of devils?'' After a long silence he said, ''What do you say that it is?'' ''It is Bumpton Street, of course,'' I snapped, ''it goes to Oldgate Station.'' ''Yes,'' he admitted gravely, ''it goes there sometimes. Just now, however, it's going to heaven.'' ''To heaven?'' I said, ''Why?'' "'It's going to heaven for justice,' he replied. "'You must have treated it badly. "'Remember always that there is one thing that cannot be endured by anybody or anything, "'that one unendurable thing is to be overworked and also neglected. "'For instance, you can overwork women, everyone does, but you can't neglect women, I defy you to.' At the same time, you can neglect tramps and gypsies and all the apparent refuse of the state, so long as you do not overwork it. But no beast of the field, no horse, no dog, can endure long to be asked to do more than his work, and yet have less than his honour. It is the same with streets. You have worked this street to death, and yet you have never remembered its existence. If you had had a healthy democracy, even a pagan's, They would have hung this street with garlands and given it the name of a god. Then it would have gone quietly. But at last the street had grown tired of your tireless insolence and is bucking and rearing its head to heaven. Have you never sat on a bucking horse? I looked at the long grey street and for a moment it seemed to me to be exactly like the long grey neck of a horse flung up to heaven. But in a moment... My sanity returned, and I said, But this is all nonsense. Streets go to the place they have to go. A street must always go to its end. Why do you think so of a street? He asked, standing very still. Because I have always seen it do the same thing, I replied in a reasonable anger. Day after day, year after year, it has always gone to Old Gate Station. Day after... I stopped, for he had flung up his head with the fury of the road in revolt. And you, he cried terribly, what do you think the road thinks of you? Does the road think you are alive? Are you alive? Day after day, year after year, you have gone to Old Gate Station. Since then I have respected the things called inanimate. And bowing slightly to the mustard pot, the man in the restaurant withdrew. End of chapter 36